and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. At the end of our last episode, Harrison was facing something he had never experienced previously, rejection by the voters. But let's step back for a moment and take a good look at General Harrison. As 1824 approached, Harrison was now 50 and a leading citizen of the Cincinnati area. He was a trustee of both Cincinnati College and the Ohio Medical School. His children were growing up, getting married, and either moving away in the case of Sims, or at least moving out of the house in the case of the rest who stayed around the North Bend, Cincinnati region. His farm at North Bend, while, quote, yielding little profit from surplus over and above the requirements for feeding numerous guests and a large family, was at least putting food on the table. He was a businessman with interests both in trade and in a brass and iron foundry. He was also on the verge of financial disaster. Anna Harrison wrote to her son, William Jr., who was engaged in studies at Transylvania College, that, quote, money is very scarce and hard to be got. His business investments turned out to be more of a boondoggle than a benefit, as the assets of the trading company he had invested in were seized by the Bank of the United States, and he was in debt to the tune of $20,000 with the foundry company. Harrison thus decided to write to James Monroe to ask for appointment as U.S. Minister to Mexico to hopefully get back on firmer financial footing. Despite having the support of Henry Clay, Monroe was on his way out of office and thus not in any big rush to fill the appointment, preferring to leave it for his successor. I want to step back from Harrison's story for a moment here to speak more to the wider American political landscape of the time. Monroe had been re-elected without challenge in 1820 in an election which Monroe biographer Harry Ammond describes as follows, quote, Never in the history of the United States have the people been so completely apathetic during a presidential election as in 1820. Indeed, there was currently much more comment about the next election, still four years distant, when it was expected that the rivalry between Calhoun, Crawford, Jackson, Adams, and Clay would transform the contest into a veritable War of the Giants. Indeed, the 1820 and 1824 elections would be the most dramatically dissimilar concurrent elections in U.S. presidential history. Three of the men competing were in Monroe's cabinet, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, Secretary of the Treasury William Crawford of Georgia, and Secretary of War John C. Calhoun of South Carolina. Henry Clay, after a brief time away from politics, had returned to the House and resumed his position of Speaker of the House in time for the election. Indeed, he had done so after consulting with his friends, with one warning him that, quote, if no candidate gets a majority of the whole number of votes, the election is to be made by the House of Representatives from the three highest. In this event, your being a member will be very important, as we're soon to see. Being Speaker was even more so. Meanwhile, Andrew Jackson had been elected to the U.S. Senate as a show that he was a serious candidate for president. At that point in our history, the only people who had been elected president had extensive resumes of public service. Andrew Jackson, on the other hand, had an extensive military background, but had served for less than a year in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, respectively, and had no experience as a cabinet member. To many, he did not seem fit for the presidency, but constitutionally, he was eligible and nationally, he was widely popular. For fear of his candidacy, Jackson was offered the post of U.S. Minister to Mexico. Yes, that post I mentioned a couple of moments ago that Harrison wanted for himself. In March 1823, a few months prior to Harrison indicating his interest, 
But Jackson saw through the scheme for what it was, namely, an attempt to get him out of the country for the election. No, Jackson's hat was in the ring, and all of the major candidates planned to be in Washington, D.C. for 1824 to help to move along their efforts. Crawford was first to stumble at the gate, and in a big way. He suffered a serious stroke in September 1823, and, though he remained in the race, it was obvious to all that he had suffered physically, and the concerns in many minds were that he had suffered mentally. Through the machinations of Senator Martin Van Buren of New York, Crawford did manage to win the Congressional Caucus nomination in February 1824, which had to that point been the primary means of choosing presidential candidates. However, Crawford's win of a caucus attended by only one-fourth of the congressional members did his overall candidacy little good and put the final nail in the coffin of the Congressional Caucus nominating system. With Crawford's win in the caucus and Calhoun's subsequent loss in the Pennsylvania State Nominating Convention, which had been expected to go for him, Calhoun dropped out of the presidential contest and focused his efforts on becoming vice president as a stepping stone to the first office. Thus, it was for all intents and purposes a race between Adams, Clay, and Jackson. Harrison would work in Ohio on behalf of Clay's candidacy, writing public letters, both using pseudonyms and at least one with his own name in the promotion and defense of Clay. Clay would eventually win Ohio, though only by less than a thousand votes. And thus, Harrison would cast his vote in the Electoral College for Clay, one of only 37 out of the 261 total cast. We'll return to Harrison in a moment, but I feel it important to continue on with the presidential election as the ripple effects of this one election will carry on all the way to Harrison's short presidency in 1841 and beyond. Clay was in fact fourth in the electoral balloting, with Jackson coming in first with 99 electoral votes, Adams second with 84 votes, and Crawford managing to win 41 votes despite his poor health. As we've already had to do far more electoral math than we ever could have imagined in 2016 when this is recorded, I'll do this bit for you. 131 electoral votes were needed to win, and no candidate had achieved that. As Clay's friend had pointed out in his letter that we mentioned earlier, only the three top vote-getters went to the House of Representatives for them to decide who would become president, which meant Clay was out. However, Clay was also the Speaker of the House. Now, this wouldn't have meant much prior to Henry Clay. The first few speakers are nearly forgotten to history, and though they played a role in organizing the institution of the House of Representatives, exercised little sway over advancing or derailing legislation before the legislature. As Clay biographer Robert Remini wrote of Clay's first election as speaker in 1811, quote, Little did these congressmen realize that they had given themselves a master a man who would indeed provide strong but domineering leadership. He was to make the post the most powerful position in the nation after the president. Thus, if you can believe it, Henry Clay, who had just been defeated for the presidency, found himself to be the most popular person in Washington. Friends and associates of all three of the presidential candidates ended up clamoring to get the speaker's ear to plead their case. Even Senator Andrew Jackson himself paid a call on Clay. Hint, hint, dear listener, you should remember this moment in a minute. It was pretty clear that Clay had his preferences as he sent his own messenger to Adams, and after some back and forth, the two men ended up in the same room together on January 9, 1825, alone. 
To this date, there is little certainty about what specifically was discussed. Adams, who is well known for his meticulous diary entries that go through the majority of his life, though noting that the conversation happened and that Clay had asked for his, quote, commitment on some principles of great public importance, as it was described by Remini, quote, Adams then abruptly ended his narrative. The vote was called on February 9th, with the state delegations casting one vote each per delegation, and, with some influence from Clay, Adams was elected president with the vote of 13 states to Jackson's seven and Crawford's four. The next day, Adams reveals his choice of Secretary of State, otherwise known at the time as the next step to the presidency, as now four of the first six presidents had served in the office, to be none other than Speaker of the House Henry Clay. Now, if you're thinking this all sounds very convenient, then you're not alone. Jackson and his supporters felt the same way and would talk about the corrupt bargain for the remainder of Adams's presidency and Clay's life. Adams's election as president, or rather the method of his election, set off a chain of events that would keep going on to the Civil War. There is a reason why the later antebellum period is called the Age of Jackson and not the Age of Adams, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The year is 1825, and Adams is now president. What does this mean for General Harrison? The fact that he had been a Clay elector and that the Kentuckian had long shown favor towards Harrison put him in good standing with the new administration, especially since he was now back in Washington as a U.S. Senator. Hold on, what? Okay, let's back up a minute. After the election, Harrison had returned to Columbus, Ohio to lobby the state legislature hard, and I mean hard, as the current Senator, E.A. Brown, had just been elected governor. As mentioned earlier, the Harrison family was in dire economic straits, so the regular per diem salary of a senator would help. Also, though speculating here, and going back to something mentioned on a previous episode, Charles Todd's advice about the benefits of being in Washington was likely in mind as Harrison could advocate for himself to fill any higher paying executive offices that may be vacant. Harrison, however, was not the only candidate for the position. The other contenders included Willis Silliman and Thomas Worthington. The general was finally able to secure pledges to receive the vote of 40 state legislators and felt his position solid enough to return to North Bend. However, as soon as he left Columbus, the Harrison detractors began to kick up dust. Vague rumors about, quote, reports and certificates lately come on from Cincinnati that would hurt Harrison's reputation were followed by rumors of an extramarital affair. The gossip mill was hard at work but it would do no good. Harrison would win election to the U.S. Senate on the fourth ballot by a vote of 58 to Silliman's 34. Mr. Harrison was headed to Washington again. He would be on hand for the inauguration and, not two days after, was already talking again about the position of U.S. Minister to Mexico, which was still vacant. Little did Harrison know that Adams was writing that same day in his diary, quote, Harrison has just now taken his seat as a senator from the state of Ohio, but is himself exceedingly anxious to obtain the appointment to Mexico and solicits recommendations for it, of which he has succeeded in obtaining many. It was not to be, however. Adams would choose Monroe's recommendation of Joel R. Poinsett for the post. Thus, Harrison settled in for work in the Senate. He was chosen as chairman of the Senate Military and Militia Committees and pushed for an increase in soldiers' pay in order to address the issue of desertions and argued against an increase in disciplinary measures as counterproductive. 
He also fought for an increase in U.S. naval forces and the establishment of a naval academy to train officers. Most of the measures he proposed would not be taken up until later, but he did successfully fight against abolishing the office of Major General, one which he had previously been in the running for and possibly hoped to be in the running for again in the future. He became enmeshed in individual claims and military reports, but not so much that he didn't socialize in Washington circles. Indeed, he was noted during this time as attending various functions at foreign embassies, as well as the homes of cabinet members. He also kept up a cordial relationship with Secretary of State Clay, with the Secretary occasionally visiting North Bend. As the next presidential election was nearing, Harrison's name was yet again being brought up as a presidential possibility. The December 29, 1827 issue of the Literary Gazette of Providence, Rhode Island, contained an article which asserted, quote, He, Harrison, is a statesman of admitted talents and superiority, and if, as the Jacksonians contend, it is necessary that the statesman should also combine the qualities of the soldier, then is General Harrison decidedly the man for the people. Harrison promptly sent this along to an editor in Columbus to reprint, which likely caught the eye of Clay. By hook or by crook, Clay had positioned himself to become president, and he began to see that the man whose career he had pushed along might just threaten his own future plans, as Harrison would draw strength from Clay in their shared home region of the country. When Harrison started soliciting support for a nomination for vice president from correspondents in Ohio, including a Clay supporter, the jig was up, and word got back to Clay. This ambitious man would have to go before the election. Thankfully, Clay's executive department was the one where unwanted people could be sent off on missions as far as to the depths of Russia. There was just one problem. Clay was not the one with the power to appoint. If he wanted to appoint Harrison to a diplomatic post, he'd have to convince John Quincy Adams, who was far from Harrison's biggest fan. Indeed, as the pressure rose for Adams to appoint Harrison as U.S. Minister to Columbia, Adams wrote in his diary after hearing from another of Harrison's solicited references, quote, This person's thirst for lucrative office is absolutely rabid. Vice President, Major General of the Army, Minister to Columbia, for each of these places he has been this very session as hot in pursuit as a hound on the scent of a hare. He is a bavard of a lively and active, but shallow mind, a political adventurer, not without talents, but self-sufficient, vain, and indiscreet. He has, withal, a faculty of making friends, and is incessantly importuning them for their influence in his favor. Truly, these were not Harrison's proudest years. An observer at the time described him as, quote, a tall, spare, gray-haired gentleman who has gone from his Virginia home into the western wilderness, while another said that, quote, his countenance was serene and engaging. Though ever the gentleman, the general knew what it would mean for his family if he could not provide proper support for them. An appointment, any appointment, any opportunity could turn the tide and help him and his family as he had helped so many others over the years. Would Adams finally relent and give him the appointment? Would the Harrisons end up in the poorhouse? Would Clay or Jackson or another Harrison foe end up putting the final nail in the coffin? I'm afraid that I'm going to have to leave you in suspense for three weeks. As you may have surmised, with all the decorations going up around you wherever you are in the world, the holidays are approaching. Thus, the Harrison Podcast will have not one, but two seasonal-themed episodes before we resume our journey through Harrison's life. 
The first will deal with the Christmas holiday in early America. I hope you'll join me then. Until then, and as always, I can be reached at Harrison Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com or at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Harrison Podcast, again, all one word. Source notes and past episodes can be found at the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com, and the podcast is available on both iTunes and Stitcher. Until next time, dear listener, take care, and thanks so much for listening.